0: So, hello everyone, and welcome to our ASME podcast. My name is Alex McCullough, and I'm a core surgical trainee here in the Northeast. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Paul Gallagher, head of school here, Mr. Alex Phillips, who is deputy training program director in the region, and Miss Aya Musbahi, a senior upper GI trainee in the region. First of all, I'd like to thank Aya for organizing this podcast and our guests for joining us this evening. Today, our topic for discussion is surgical training during COVID time. Is this the age of the generalist? Aya, do you want to tell us the reason that we're discussing this today?
1: Thank you, Alex, for the introduction. Um, I think the topic that we're discussing stems from experiences that um, a number of trainees have had during the first wave of the pandemic. As everyone who works in healthcare knows, the pandemic has affected us in ways that we couldn't predict. So about 18 months ago, we didn't know what was going to be in store for us. And especially in surgery, we've had to cancel elective operating. Uh, some uh, trainees have had to be re- redeployed to other areas and we've had to scale down workforce and maybe just focus on emergency work and I think that has really affected training. A lot of people have found that they're just, uh, they've are just they gone back to being generalists again, general surgeons. The distinction between subspecialties uh, is blurred um, during emergency times and it seems to have highlighted the fact that we have become quite specialised And so, and we're so used to deferring for specialist opinions that when actually we're forced to be the sole healthcare provider for a patient, sometimes that can be quite difficult. And as a trainee, um, I think it's highlighted particularly that our training is more and more focused um, and perhaps that we're decided or that we are encouraged from an early stage to decide on subspecialty and not just specialty. And that raises a question about whether we are neglecting an ability to provide a general workforce and is the generalist uh, what's needed uh, in the future.
0: So I suppose the, the more experienced consultants are very much trained generally and as the structure of healthcare delivery has changed over the last decade or so consultants have been forced really to sub-specialize, Um but they still have the training to go general if required uh, is that fair Mr Gallagher?
2: It's interesting and historically at the end of the last century consultants would care for patients with a wide variety of conditions. I remember when I was a medical student, I attended an all day operating list where the consultant general surgeon undertook operations on different patients, including a gastrectomy, colectomy, aortic aneurysm repair, and a prostatectomy. So they had a, a very wide range of, of a general interest. Over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a progressive service reorganization in the UK with the emphasis on elective subspecialization in centers, with the anticipation of improved patient outcomes. Larger hospitals may have all the services under one roof, but smaller hospitals may need to refer some patients to specialist centers for ongoing management. However, this can be difficult to replicate in the urgent setting for a variety of reasons. Our current surgical curricula, and there's a new curricula implementing in August this year, recognizes that competence in all aspects of emergency presentation as well as the common elective conditions is required to obtain certificate certification at the end of training this may not mean that the surgeon is undertaking all of the procedures but they know how to assess and arrange a referral if appropriate to a subspecialist colleague so all surgeons will be trained to be competent in the management of all common and emergency general surgery conditions but may not always do the operating. And just to go back to Aya's point, the the covid crisis has put something in focus that uh, never mind in terms of surgery we first of all we are doctors and may have to use the general knowledge that we have as doctors unrelated to surgery to treat for patients in this in this crisis. Um, but surg- certainly it's put a focus on um surgeons having to do things that would normally be not in their their realm of everyday experience. Is that
0: something you agree
2: with Mr Phillips?
3: Yes, so there's no doubt that Covid has been a real game changer in the way that we work. There's been unpredictability to the workload and a real emphasis on teamwork and adaptability. I think that consultants that have been working in their own silos will have found the whole Covid situation the hardest. So if I take myself as an example, I work as a part of a specialised team that deals with upper GI cancers. But we do a lot of general surgery work too, such as hernias and gallbladders in our elective practice. We're well used to working as a team, and I think our strength is excellent communication, which means none of the cancer patients had delays and we had excellent results that we've even published. But the general component to our workload certainly has slowed and We simply weren't doing these cases for a certain period of time due to concerns about pressures on the system. From an emergency point of view, most general surgeons are prepared to deal with what comes through the door. And that's the prerequisite that you need for your CCT. But having a good team around you and knowing that you can call on a friend is always reassuring. I think there's certainly been some change to what we're seeing as emergencies as well. So as an upper GI surgeon, I think I've dealt with more colonic cancers in the last two months than I probably have in the last two years. But I think that the training that was and is provided equips as well with dealing with this unpredictability. The biggest problem with dealing with clinical situations that aren't your bread and butter is frequently not the operating, but the decision-making. Often there's more than one option that seems sensible, but picking the right one can be a combination of experience, gut instinct, and luck.
0: And I suppose, has it been a welcome change to go back to being more of a, a general surgeon again and, and dealing with these general emergency presentations? Or have you found it quite difficult uh, as senior consultants going back to the very general emergency work?
2: I mean, for myself, the, the range of procedures that I undertake hasn't really changed, but it's it's the challenge of the altered team structure. So with potentially redeployment of our surgeons in training and middle grades, Uh, there's maybe a greater need to be more involved on a a shop floor level. Um, So it's been very stimulating in certain ways. Obviously, I think we're all sick to the back teeth of COVID at the moment and want it to disappear. And that initial um, excitement almost at the start of the COVID pandemic of what it all meant in conjunction with the uh, the discomfort about it, that, that's certainly fading as it were now. And I think for most of us, we're now in a structured pattern of delivery of urgent surgical services uh, that's safe. What will be interesting is the pause that's happened in many hospitals throughout the country on elective surgical services that are non-urgent, non-cancer, um, that when we come back to doing those operations again, we may not have done operations like that for 12 months or so
3: so so I would agree that actually the range of operations that we're dealing with has not really changed and um, I think most people that do general surgery on call are exposed to a a wide variety of things that come through the door and what I found that has changed is that the frailty and um, the level of illness has changed and that patients are presenting at a much sicker stage, which gives you a much larger challenge. So um, it's not your 50 or 60 year old that's coming in with an obstructing cancer, which doesn't happen very often because often people are picked up through various other ways. It's your 80-year-old who has been shielding for the last nine months and didn't really want to come and see anybody anyway, but is now presenting in a really sick state with an obstructing cancer that needs something done very urgently. And the risk of morbidity and the risk of mortality associated with it is much harder. So I think that the challenge is not just us in the operating, but also it. it relays on to our critical care colleagues and they're having to help out and, and deal with sicker patients that we're operating on. So so I, I agree, I don't think the range has changed much but I think that the um, level of challenge with the patients hasn't got worse.
2: I think that's a very fair point Alex and even what we would normally term simple conditions such as in general surgery appendicitis or abscesses, infection in gallbladders or, or obstructed hernias presenting as an emergency, the patients have been scared to come into hospital at the start of the pandemic, and we were seeing patients with a very advanced stage of pathology um, because they were, they were presenting so late. I think to a degree now that's settled, um, but it can be difficult sometimes for patients to access healthcare services or, or know how to present, particularly with an urgent condition. Um, but yeah, it, it's provided different challenges, not so much technical, but as you say, Alex, in terms of tea working and decision making,
0: that's all very interesting. Um, I think from my personal experience, um, I've had the same thing. Uh, we've seen patients come in a lot sicker um, and uh, needing a lot more urgent surgery than maybe we did in the past. Mr. Gallagher, you, you said there that a lot of the juniors in the team would have to uh, it had to be redeployed or you know potentially off and or self isolating or them indeed themselves unwell with COVID. Has it been difficult? being back on the shop floor a bit more present or is it something that the consultants of today are expected to be doing in their day-to-day practice being there and around and on the shop floor?
2: We've been relatively fortunate in the northeast that in the first wave of COVID there was relatively little redeployment but there was um, an emphasis on covering colleagues who were either isolating or shielding. And the rotors became much tighter. So I think we've all been a lot more involved uh, in the initial assessment of patients in ambulatory care units, for instance, um, making very quick decisions at a relatively senior level to decide whether the patient could leave the hospital to reduce their COVID risks. We haven't been so much involved, myself directly, with the basics of what the foundation doctors would be doing on day-to-day ward care, Um, but certainly the, the team has thinned out and again, just to emphasise that communication and teamwork is is the, the thing that holds it together and provides good patient care. At the same time, we have been able to continue training of surgeons and that, that is really important because the effect of the COVID pandemic is undoubtedly going to delay uh, the progress of training for, for many surgeons in training at the moment.
1: Can I just add, Alice, one of the things that was... Um quite interesting that Mr Gallagher mentioned was about consultants being kind of present as senior decision makers and that's something that I think a lot of uh, you know the NC pod report in the past and royal colleges did produce a lot of guidance regarding this but I remember when I was kind of more junior it was there wasn't a lot of appetite for this kind of level of involvement from consultants and also I think you know there wasn't a lot of appetite for the emergency general surgeon Do we think that COVID has increased, perhaps, interest in emergency general surgery as a specialty or a subspecialty in itself? And do we think that that should be treated in its own regard, like upper GI, colorectal, endocrine, etc.?
2: If I could take that, maybe first of all, um, uh, Aya, it's been in the last decade or so there's been an interest in emergency general surgery. as as a dedicated career, but it depends what that means on a day-to-day level for for the surgeon, because if it's just assessing patients in an assessment unit or just being on call overnight and dealing with relatively straightforward operations, probably that um, will satisfy somebody for a few years, but they'll want to then progress through their career. So for much of UK practice, it's combining a daytime interest in an elective specialty, but then also staffing the rotors to provide 24-7 cover uh, throughout the hospital. There are perhaps some very large centres where emergency surgeons have developed their own niche and will be dealing with the majority of all uh, operative as well as clinical aspects of emergency care with the occasional need to bring in their subspecialist colleagues. Uh, There are some smaller hospitals, again, that they've come up with a different structure where surgeons have a predominantly emergency-based job plan with very little elective work, but that then frees up the other consultants to continue uh, that elective work. But they're finding a, a very rewarding career in emergency surgery. So I think certainly it's something that's going to develop, and certainly it's something that our trusts, our employers, will be looking to appoint people to these jobs as the years go by. COVID, I think, has put it into focus, the advantage of having um, a quick, high-level decision made on patients presenting as an emergency, both to see whether they need to stay in the hospital, but also the appropriate allocation of resource. So do they need a scan? Do they need an operation? Or can they be managed as an outpatient? But yeah, I I think in the future, very much so, COVID will change the way that we deliver urgent surgical care. So um, I'm not sure that COVID itself
3: will make emergency surgery more attractive or more required um, I think what COVID has done from an emergency point of view is highlighted the need to work in teams and to be prepared to be flexible in the way that you're working and certainly at the time of the first lockdown we had an on-call rotor, but there was a backup tier going to four or five levels, with the expectation that people would be off sick. Um, in the end, I think there was only one shift that needed to be covered because somebody was isolating, and then another because someone had COVID, which was actually me. So, um, um, from from a, whether emergency surgery needs to be recognised as a specialty in its own right, um, I think. The answer is yes. But as Paul says, it's very difficult to know what the long term plan or what the job will be for somebody that enters an emergency surgeon surgery job. And is that going to be their career for the 25 years or 30 years they spend as a consultant? Or is it going to be something they do in the more junior consultant years, but they actually have Uh, a subspecialty behind it they're going to fall onto and and I think that that can be a difficult question to answer and the concern that I would have with emergency surgery jobs is that firstly it can be difficult to make the job attractive because it's quite intense to have a large proportion of your job being on call or dealing with unpredictability and emergencies and secondly there is a sort of slight historical stigma attached to these and what you don't want is that people that take these jobs to feel that they are less good as consultants than those that are specialists as such and I think it almost uh, sounds a bit derogatory to say well they're the specialists and I'm the emergency surgeon but actually um, being an emergency surgeon and being a good emergency surgeon can be extremely demanding and the decision making there is very difficult as well so uh, I think you're right it probably needs to be recognized in its own right in order to make it more attractive and more accepted um, but it's by no means an easy option to go down, and it's very challenging. So, if you want good people to take those jobs, you need to make it attractive somehow. And the question is, how do you do that?
0: Uh, Mr. Gallagher, you, you raised before about the, the change in the curricula, and I suppose it sort of leads on to the, the shape of training review, which, uh, my understanding, sort of wants to lead to more of a broad based general surgeon that can dip in and out of, its, of their specialty when required. And it, it sounds like COVID has sort of gone against that and in, in a way because really you've very much stuck to your specialties which is providing the great upper GI and quarterbackal service you do but then also being the the emergency general surgeon how do you think Covid may alter the shape of training review plans or do you think it will change them at all?
2: I, I think not in, in certain ways um, the thrust of shape of training was to be able to provide uh, the workforce of the future to provide quality care Um, on an emergent as well as an elective basis. And if we think of the journey of a trainee coming through from foundation years into core training, it's very much essential that they have uh, exposure to common conditions, both for their own development clinically, but also operatively, because it's better off probably that they're acting as the first operator on relatively straightforward common conditions rather than spending their training time holding retractors and being second or third assistant at a very complex operation. Saying that, it's also important that they do get exposure to uh, more specialised procedures during their training to see if that's what they want to do and then also to understand the clinical care of those patients. And as they progress through into specialty training in the third and fourth years, when they're developing the early years specialist skills, they'll get the opportunity to select their specialty if that's what they want to do. And at the same time, they're continuing with their training in the generality of surgery, so that they are able to provide that overall care uh, for common conditions and emergency conditions. Now, the length of training may, for some uh, select specialties, require further fellowships after certification, after CCT. Uh, if the procedures that the trainees undertaking are going to be very complicated uh, or if they're on common conditions. So I, I think the shape of training will be fulfilled or is being fulfilled with the new curriculum. Um, it will deliver us trainees who can become consultants with the ability to bra- manage a broad range of conditions but still allow that uh, subspecialist interest.
3: Alex, you're quite right. The shape of training review emphasised that training doctors with generalist clinical and professional capabilities is important for the future workforce and i think we have a training program that still very much caters for this specialism isn't really focused on until the final couple of years of training and in many cases not just with the general surgical subspecialties people undergo specialist fellowships so that they can really enhance their skills So I think we have training programs across different surgical specialties that do give people the the foundation for generic skills that, that allow them to deal with problems. And I think that those that want to have a specialist string to their bow, then go on and and do that in their final years of training and then usually go on and take fellowships. And it's not unknown for people to do more than one fellowship in order to feel that they're completely comfortable in doing something very high tech. So um, I think at the moment we are meeting the criteria that Paul said and and
2: that the the training programmes are very much fit for purpose. And just to emphasise that for most consultants who are appointed, nearly all of their training will have occurred during the training programme. So Uh, A a fellowship is certainly an option after CCT, but by no means necessary. So uh, when somebody reaches the end of training, they'll be assessed as being competent and then ready to take up the consultant post. Um, But for a small number of trainees, that extra time after CCT to obtain additional experience through a fellowship will be useful for their subspecialty interest.
0: As a, as a trainee coming through, it's reassuring that uh, you both think that our the pathway that I'm going on and a lot of other people listening will be going on is fit for purpose and that uh, COVID hasn't highlighted uh, a major flaw in, in the training programme and that's actually quite robust. Um, Mr Phillips, have you had much involvement with the IST trainees coming through and the, and the run-through trainees coming through? And, and what are your thoughts on the uh, the training pathway that that provides
3: I think it's important to remember that the IST run through trainees will still have had a very broad based curriculum and have generic competencies that they need to achieve. The newest edition of the curriculum that was released towards the end of last year and is coming into force later this year has tried to emphasise the importance of it being a competency based curriculum rather than a time based one. Interestingly, this was exactly what was said when the Intercollegiate Surgical Curriculum Project, the ISCP to you and me was released more than a decade ago. But then ISCP was replacing a syllabus rather than a curriculum and it took a much broader view and was more prescribed than its predecessor which was essentially just a list of topics. I think there are pros and cons to having a run through pathway. In the past trainees could almost build their own training program which was bespoke and they'd have experience in a breadth of surgical specialties, plastic surgery, ENT, orthopaedics. And I think this was really great for developing skills and helping individuals decide on the best specialty for them. But it also gave them a background to draw upon that enabled them to perhaps deal with unpredictability better and perhaps combine the features of generalism and specialism. I haven't had... A great deal of experience with the IST trainees that are coming through, but I have witnessed a couple of them and they did seem to be quite advanced for, or quite able. And it's, it's difficult to know. When we originally had MTAS back in 2007 and we were designed to have run through training there, I think it was all organized in a slightly chaotic way. And I don't think it was thought through very well. Um, You could argue that if you go to other parts of the world, people choose their selections or their specialties at a very early point in their career. Um, But I'm not necessarily sure that that's the right thing or the best thing. And and I often say to trainees, there shouldn't really be a rush to get to the end and being consultants. I think there's two things that you want from your training. I think you want to enjoy it. And I think that's really important. And I think you want to feel that at the end of it, you're prepared for the rigours and the demands of being a consultant. And I think that's the advantages of having an uncoupled system where often people had a bit more opportunity to sometimes take time out of the system and and do other things. So I have a little bit of reservation about run throughs and we'll just have to see how it pans out. Uh, Mr. Gallagher,
0: is that something you've also thought about?
2: Well, we've only just started the Improving Surgical Training pilot project in our region three months ago, uh, whereas it's been up and running in the rest of the UK for a couple of years. And that was because of the the stringent requirements um, to make sure that we were going to be able to deliver that in terms of the amount of supervision required, as well as the structure of rotors and on-call patterns. So one of the advantages um, of the Improving Surgical Training pilot is that a trainee will be appointed at an ST1 level and then will have a guaranteed rotation all the way through to ST8 and that that appeals to a lot of trainees knowing that they'll be in the same location, the same region. Alex is right and what you don't want necessarily to do is commit at too early a stage if it's not right for you Um, and sometimes uh, different pathways are useful so we we would continue with what we'd call um an uncoupled program as as well as a run-through program so that people have choice at what level that they will come into surgical training in most of our specialties
0: and I suppose uh, you both mentioned there about not wanting to pick a specialty too soon but it's quite the, the more common thing now amongst trainers is to have had a few years if not three four five years before they even join at ST or CT1 so is there an argument to saying that in those years post-foundation pre-joining a a formalized training program that that's the time that people are finding out what specialties they do and don't want to do and and what areas they do and don't want to work in?
3: So I I think that's um, quite a reasonable thing to expect but there almost seems to be a pressure on those that are coming towards the end of their second foundation year to find a rotation and then to move seamlessly into that. And it, it probably isn't helped by the fact that those that decide to perhaps try and enter at the slightly later stage at ST3 are quite heavily penalised if they've acquired extra years of experience uh, on their CV. So uh, I think the problem there is that it is a, some of them have, have done very worthwhile things and gained lots of experience and are now very mature and know exactly what they want to do but they're getting penalised for doing that because they've taken more years to get to that point. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned that there are very good people that potentially are missing out.
2: I, I'd just take a slightly different slant that um, I think the majority of people who enter into surgical training have probably made that decision during medical school or foundation years from the, the experience that we've had. And certainly as surgeons, it's important for us to mentor and develop that interest at that early years level. If you're then taking several years out to decide what you want to do, there are avenues that you can go on to a formal surgical training program. But the majority of people entering core training are coming through from foundation years. And then the majority of people entering into specialty training um, have not usually had that bigger gap if they're UK graduates between medical school and actually application but there are different ways through and then also to emphasize there are other opportunities once you're on a specialty training program once you've made the broad decision do I want to be a general surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or a cardiac surgeon or a pediatric surgeon etc within those specialties you will have different placements lasting six or 12 months in the subspecialties to sample uh, so you can decide what you want to do there will also be the opportunities to pause your training and have an out-of-programme experience, either related to research or teaching or training or other aspects as well. So within that, uh, you you can pause because, as we know, some of us will just want to learn at different rates and other life events will will mean that we might need some time out of training as well.
0: And uh, I, uh, as a, a, a trainee in the region too, uh, how did you find that Covid's impacted your training uh, sort of bringing it back to Covid do you find that you've been able to become very general again or do you fa- have you found that uh, opportunities have been limited because of the the outbreak
1: I don't think it really affected me personally um that much I, I mean we still managed to keep where I was working we Still managed to keep elective lists going I still had um quite a lot of experience Um, but I think for those people who maybe have been affected I think it's important for us maybe to accept that the training doesn't have to stop when you stop being an ST8 you know Um, and I think teaching and training new consultants that's something that I've I've seen senior consultants you know mentor and take new consultants under their wing and teach them new things or you know teach them uh, you know a new technique or a new operation and that's something that should be allowed to continue you know you don't suddenly stop being able to train once you finish your training program and just because it's not a formalized thing you should still be able to learn and expand the breadth of your experience. I'm sure old school surgeons who maybe only did open, they must have learned laparoscopic surgery when they were consultants, and somebody must have taught them that. And if the people who are learning robotics, they learned it when they were consultants, they didn't learn it as trainees. So somebody must have taught them that and they were trained to do that. So, you know, that training process shouldn't be just a fixed point in time when you're between ST3 and 8, you know, it should be a continuous and evolving process. And perhaps, in a way, maybe that should be something that is formalised through fellowships or mentorship or senior and junior consultant mentorship is another possibility, I guess. But these are just ideas of mine.
2: No, I, th- I think that's uh, some useful comment, I, I suppose we'd redefine it as continuing professional development rather than training when you switch to being a consultant. But all of us, particularly in the early years of being a consultant, will really lean on our uh, other surgical colleagues and consultants um, for decision-making as well as a practical experience in the operating theatre uh, and advice there. And really, that just continues through lifelong because there will be changes, as you say, in technology. And I I was on the initial laparoscopic wave when that first started and and now starting to think about the the implication of robotic surgery. Or there will be changes in the conditions that we deal with or the pandemic. So we, we don't know what's quite around the corner. So I think for a lot of us at the start of the pandemic, we had to do an awful lot of revision about virology and public health that we hadn't really thought about for 20 or 30 years. So it's a lifelong learning process, definitely.
3: I agree. I think it's always important to remember that a career in medicine or surgery involves lifelong learning. So I think you need to be very open to new technologies. I'm not saying that every new technology or every new technique that comes along needs to be embraced and is the right thing to do. But I think it certainly needs to be considered because undoubtedly there will be some things that come along that allow you to do things better than you're doing them at the moment. And I think uh, robotic surgery is the obvious candidate at the moment. Um, We've got robots here. I think there's many around the northeast and they're all around the country. And what it allows you to do, the vision that it gives you, the um, dexterity that it provides you with, Makes, I think, some surgery certainly easier, and I think it will be here to stay. And it will certainly have benefits in certain areas.
0: So it's very reassuring then that as we enter what is now our third lockdown here in the UK, that as a, a trainee going forward, it's, it, it's reassuring to think that actually there is still some training hope at the end of the tunnel uh, when as we go through what is still an evolving pandemic. Have you had any experiences in your work where you as a senior trainee have been aiding and helping a consultant in operations or in decision making that maybe they haven't had to make in years because of the pandemic? Is that something you've come across as a, a senior trainee in the region? Have you found that you've uh, had sort of conversation with consultants about making decisions that maybe they're not uh, so comfortable with and you've been the person they've leaned on for advice? Or in theatre, have you been the person that said, actually, uh, whatever consultant, uh, the current uh, literature suggests doing this? um, As as things have been coming up and consultants have been covering for colleagues and doing things that they may not have been doing in their day-to-day work?
1: Sometimes as you if you if you're for example experienced in a particular area like I've for example have had a lot of years in bariatrics if I'm on call say with a colorectal surgeon who's you know never aspirated a gastric band you know doesn't know how to remove one or you know something like that emergency situation or a specific upper GI issue and you're on call with a colorectal or in you know previous hospitals on call with breast surgeons or you know you can offer that advice and I think um you you don't want to be you know a you know cheeky registrar who's telling people what to do, but sometimes if you've come from a different kind of background or different area of expertise, you can offer a suggestion or some advice. And I think most people have the kind of uh, maturity to 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 take it and to you know um, understand where you're coming from. So I don't think it's about you know I've I've never you know had to. You know, take over from a consultant that's not appropriate but i think um you can offer if you if you've got an area of expertise that you can be of assistance in and help in, or uh, you've if you know how to do an upper gi scope or you know an ogd or whatever and you know that consultant perhaps can't do one then yes you know your skills might be called in to help but um i guess you know that that's probably the extent of it really
3: so so the flip side alex is I'm, I'm more than happy to ask my registrar for their opinion and for their help. And I don't think that you should as- underestimate the importance of common sense as well as experience. So if you're on with sensible team members, then it's very good to have a registrar that you can ask their advice from. Um, as an upper GI surgeon, if I have a senior colorectal trainee with me, I regard that as being very fortunate because... They will certainly have done more recently some of the things that might come up in an emergency take. And I think it's very reasonable to ask them their opinions on things. Ultimately, the buck will fall to me and the responsibility falls to me. But I think you can use your trainees as a source of um, training and keeping up to date very easily. And I think it's important that you recognise their value as part of the team
2: one other point just to bring in on that is for for any surgeon who's the lead operator uh, we would emphasize non-operative technical skills and that's not just the the technical aspects of what you're doing but controlling your operating environment and, and controlling yourself in that environment and it's very useful having a trainee that you can just pause the operation and say this is what i'm thinking do you have any other thoughts um number one or a trainee asking you a question because they realize that you're heading on a trajectory that you normally wouldn't do because sometimes you can develop tunnel vision as the primary operator and not aware of other aspects that that you might need to consider so it's invaluable bouncing those ideas off another person be that a trainee or another consultant colleague.
3: Paul I completely agree I think you've summed it up very nicely there.
0: Mr Gallagher as head of school obviously you're really involved in um, our the training of of junior surgeons as we develop. Um, have you been made aware of uh, trainees that have had to defer their training or potentially looking at deferring their training as an impact on co- as COVID?
2: So yes, the, there's, there's many trainees have uh, been affected by COVID. Different specialties have been affected in different ways. So those with a predominantly elective um, workload leading to elective curriculum requirements will have had their training uh, extended already. Uh, those that have a predominantly either emergency or urgent cancer basis will have been able to continue training and be able to progress through with their their normal competencies and that they're assessed at the end of year that they're able to progress to the next level. Um, The the, the main issue with COVID has been the lack of operating experience Uh, for most trainees, that's what they've noticed. To a degree, for general surgery, for instance, endoscopy training Uh, other trainees for outpatients as well although they will have gained a lot of different experience in the emergency setting. Um, There's also other competencies that you'll require to to get through and that might be related to a course or other curriculum outcomes and of course passing exams as well. Now we're aware of all of this um, at a national level And that's why we brought in different outcomes to the annual review of competence, the ARCPs of what we'd call an outcome 10 as, as a no fault indication that your training will need likely to be extended. Um, And that's been implemented throughout the UK um, over the last uh, nine months now, really since COVID started. So your, your training program directors, your supervisors and, the health education authorities nationally are aware of these issues and will be very sympathetic to just allow that when we do eventually return to normal service.
0: And Mr Phillips, I know you're interested in exams, Um, do we run the risk of having trainees who are reaching the end of their training and don't have their exams?
3: I think that's eminently possible. so when COVID came, certainly if you look at things like the FRCS exam, it, it caused a delay to the, the part ones and the part twos, and, and that led to a backlog of people that needed to take exams. Um, I know that the part two exam that was scheduled for February has been deferred into the summer. The part one that's due to happen at the beginning of February, I think is still on, but may have changes made to it. Um, but it's very possible, especially as the second part of the exam is patient dependent and, and they had made provisions for COVID and patients and how they would be dealt with. But I think it's difficult to know whether you'll be able to or be allowed to or be able to get patients in for doing a clinical exam in the summer. And um, we hope that there's going to be a vaccination programme and we hope that COVID will be better controlled. But... It doesn't give trainees very much margin of error if they've not had an opportunity for most of a year to do an exam. Um, they almost they'll feel additional pressure at having to pass at that point. Um, otherwise, they're going to have to extend their training because the, the next for the ST8, the next opportunity will be probably after they've completed that ST8 year. So so I think it does add the pressure on to the trainees and there is an uncertainty about
2: whether exams will go ahead um, in the summer as well. Just to provide some reassurance on top of that, Alex, um, if the, if trains are just needing to pass the exam already, there, there would be the, uh, the possibility to extend training. And as I say, because it's related to COVID, it would be a no fault extension to training. Um, the exit exams, the FRCS, the intercollegiate exam, if you like, has adapted um, so that the round that we ran in November didn't include patients um, so that we could take the exam. But the format of the clinical stations was changed. And that's under review by the Intercollegiate Exam Board just to make sure that we can run exams. And I'm sure they'll be very flexible on the timetabling of when the exams are going to occur to get as many trainees who are at a critical progression point the opportunity to take the exam at the earliest possible time as well. So so be reassured by that.
0: I suppose uh, sort of one one last question then to you both, means a lot of the trainees now are uh, sort of facing having sat a lot of exams during COVID, whether it be part MRCS part A at home or FRCS or whichever exam, whilst trying to revise during what is a, a really difficult time for everyone, Apart from the work side, people aren't able to see their families, weren't able to go home for Christmas. Personally, it's been quite difficult for a lot of trainees. Um, Have you got any advice or tips or sort of any words of reassurance for those trainees that are trying to do what is already a difficult exam during an even more difficult period of time?
2: So we're still waiting on the final analysis, but uh, the word is that there's certainly been no decrease in pass rates uh, with these professional exams. Um, in certain ways, it might have given more time and more focus for trainees who've who've been out of the hospital environment to to learn the knowledge based aspects uh, required for examinations. It's always difficult revising for exams and motivation is one of the hardest things as well as confidence. Um, but again, be reassured the the exams are robust, but they're fair and they have adapted due to the uh, the needs of COVID in order to run the exams.
3: I think um, actually Paul's hit on a very important point there, and about motivation. And it is very hard to get motivated. It's very hard when you're working um, in busy jobs. It's very hard when you don't necessarily have the support and the other things to look forward to around it. And additionally, it's hard when there's a degree of uncertainty regarding to when the exams will take place and the content of the exams. So. I think there are some reassuring words there regarding pass rates and um, knowing that jobs are likely will be extended as required in order to cover you while these things happen. So hopefully trainees can take some solace in that and know that they've got some security there. But um, but I think everyone appreciates that that these things are challenging at the moment.
0: Good. And Again, I'm sure I agree that it's really reassuring to hear to uh, people who are involved in our training so much acknowledge that not only the difficult things to go through, but they're uh, being difficult, even made more even difficult uh, with everything else going on at the moment. Um, that's grand, uh, thank you very much. So um, I think we're drawing to the end now of, a, of what's been a really enlightening discussion actually. I just wanna thank you all for joining us today. I know uh, obviously work has been particularly busy this week and only uh, sort of promises to get busier, I guess. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much everyone for listening. Um, And I think we'll end it there.